Re is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, BC, focused on being church with mission in mind. We acknowledge that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. We are your hosts, Greg Elford and Jess Steffick, and this is the Re Podcast. The prefix that hopes for more than we had before. As we press into dialogues around what comes to mind when we or others hear words like gospel or salvation or Jesus, we are evaluating what is actually good about what we effectively call the good news gospel. And it raises the question, how does an announcement that Jesus is a figure that embodies a much better human story translate practically to relevant good news? We are thrilled to introduce two guests today. First, we sit with Andrew Mills, an academic who's also a pastor, who paints a picture of how important it is to locate our lives and the focus of our churches on the kingship of Jesus or other helpful biblical metaphors. Following Andrew, we're excited to explore the inspiration of a song and ultimately listen to Amy Van Bergen sing about how she's challenged a narrow news with a deeper goodness and less harrowing Easter scene. Thanks for joining us. All right. Well, we are excited to have Andrew Mills here with us on the Repodcast. And just for a little background, Andrew, we met in a really hot place uh, politically and, I guess, climate-wise. In Israel, we were on a a pilgrimage together and so spent like hours in vans together and walking around looking at all kinds of rocks and pillars and things. Um, so we, uh, we have that history, but I remember f- so fondly some of our conversations, and I'm so grateful that you would come uh, be part of this with us. So welcome. Thanks so much for being here with us. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad, glad to be here. Awesome. We, we often start in the same way, and that's especially with someone that folks in our community wouldn't know. Uh, just asking you to tell us a bit about yourself or, or inviting you to introduce yourself in a way you think people would connect to you. Sure. Yeah. So for me, um, like my name is Andrew. Um, some of the major things in my life is that I am a husband. I'm a dad of three kids. I'm also a pastor. I've been a pastor now for, it's almost approaching 20 years. And I really believe in pastoring and I believe in community. I believe in how God brings people together. And um, yeah, those are some of the things that um, matters to me. My wife is becoming a midwife right now. So she's back in school. So we're in the midst of lots of um, changes in our personal lives as we are seeing her as about a year left to school and then she'll be a midwife, which is excellent for us. And we have, as I said, three young kids, which keeps our lives interesting. So, yeah. Oh, awesome. Um, I guess just to dig a little bit more into uh, what what makes you tick, um, we'd love to hear just about some of your passion. uh, What gets you most excited in life? That is there something that kind of drives your work and your study, your ministry? Uh, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, sure. I guess the obvious church answer is like Jesus um, does that. Uh, Not which allowed. Is, no, allowed that <laughs> one. Um, but like one layer deeper than like, I, I obviously I love Jesus. I love the Bible. But for me, something that drives like what I do as a pastor, leading a church, leading other pastors and all of that is for me is the actual art of pastoring and the need of that in community. Um, and by that, uh, when I say pastoring, I don't mean like, like preaching, I mean, like the art of really discerning and seeing where's God moving in someone's life? Where is he active? How can we bring awareness to that? How can we align our lives with that? I think that's what good pastoring does. So that makes me excited in what I um, try to do every day as best I can. Would you say that that is like something new that's just been brewing over the last couple of years? Or uh, I guess, how did you kind of come to be able to articulate that passion or that drive? Or has it always been there? Yeah, it's, it's been there pretty early. I grew up as a Christian, walked away in high school, um, uh, did not follow Jesus at all, did everything you can think of in high school, all that stuff, um, came back. Um, but my dad was a pastor 
So I grew up in a pastor's home and my dad was somebody who I actually believe was like a true pastor. And by that, I mean, somebody whose gifting wasn't just in preaching, although he was awesome at that. It was about really discerning God's movement in a community, naming that, inviting people to, to align their lives with that. And for me, like that's, that's what makes me tick. That's what I love. I have nothing against CEOs, but there's been a move in pastoral um, like, like theology and pastoral education to pattern ourselves after CEOs. And I actually just think that's not the right thing. We pattern ourselves after Jesus. And I think now more than ever in the world we are living in, discernment and being able to see in God, moving up someone's life, to be able to name it, to be able to story our lives into it is needed more than ever. So for me, it was my dad's influence on me. Um, I pastored with him for eight years um, before, unfortunately, he had, he had passed away from cancer. Um, but um, that was the biggest influence in me on driving that passion. And it's still yeah, still there today. Oh, I love to hear the way that you talk about your relationship with your dad. And it sounds like you really respected him. And that it would it would it be true that he really pastored you at one stage? Oh, I, I actually, so this is my um, bias. Okay. I don't think you can learn to pastor unless you are pastored by someone. Like you are mentored into that. You are you are apprenticed into that. Uh, you can't just be taught that through books. That's something like my dad had me read books. I went to school. I have you know two degrees, whatever. Um, but I learned to pastor from him. And I think that's what we need more of. It's that one-on-one -on -one, or even one in community is really the better. Like that's how it functions. Um, and so, yeah, it was from him that, that I learned that. And yeah, it was kind of um, shaped in that way. That's really cool to imagine. Um, thanks, thanks for giving us a bit of the piece of your personal story there. And I think as we head into this topic of the gospel, I can imagine that uh, when things that can be so easily taken into the realm of kind of academic theology or academic pursuits, um, it's so nice to know that you also have a passion for the, the pastoral work that happens kind of boots on the ground. And I think this topic, or at least the way we want to talk about it, is trying to find the balance between those things of understanding what the gospel is and how we, how we can root it in scriptural sort of understandings or ways of reading the Bible, but also how we can uh, recognize that culture has, uh, has something to say about the, the best angles on the gospel, or at least that's how we're wondering if it works. Just as we head into this topic, we'd love to ask you for sort of a simple definition or a way to start to wrap our heads around how to describe the gospel. And just for fun, why don't we do it as if you were describing it to your 10 or 12-year-old, which you okay. maybe have. I don't know. Yeah, we, we talk about faith um, in my house a lot. My kids are the kids who have a lot of questions, like a lot, and they don't get how things work out. And why does this happen? Why does that not happen? So for me, when I talk to them about the gospel, the way, especially with younger kids, um, the way I would put it, and uh, I think this resonates with you guys too, I would just talk about how Jesus is in charge or that Jesus is the king. Um, and for me, like for a child, this is huge. What it emphasizes is that there's somebody who actually is in charge of running things and that we're invited into aligning our lives with that. And yes, this involves us. Um, it involves us um, having some things, you know, freed from us, liberated, all of that. But it's also about us living our lives and patterning them after Jesus. So you have my youngest, we talk about like Jesus in charge and we're going we're gonna to do the things he asks of us. Um, and that for us is, is really grounding. And um, we even have a, a small little exercise we do every, every week, actually, as a, entering into the Sabbath for us, where we talk about some of these things that God loves us. And this is the, the place where then we try to then love others as a representation of that. That's, that's gospel stuff to me. Um, it might not have the academic language to it. We could get into that, but it's about the fact that Jesus is King, and then we um, pledge allegiance to Him or live our lives like Him. Um, and I think that matters. I think you're going to get into this a little bit more later, as far as how gospel relates to culture. But I'm wondering if you can even just give us a little teaser now. Do you think that that definition or kind of understanding articulation of the gospel is a timeless one? Or do you think that is one that is maybe uh, specific to right now? Or do you think that someone could have said that for the last forever? Yeah. Yeah, I think always when you're talking about the gospel, it gets mixed into our world because we're living in a situated space. Um, but I would want to say that that idea is timeless, but how it interacts in different spaces and different places, that changes. So I think if you want to like narrow down the gospel, it should be Jesus is king or he is Lord, right? Or Jesus is savior. 
But then you got to unpack what does that mean? Like in Paul's day and age, it had a very different resonance than for us, right? Um, this is why some scholars actually say we shouldn't be talking about not faith in Christ, but allegiance to Christ as that's a better way to translate that, that resonates with our culture. So the problem is this culture shifts. And then we bring that into conversation with the Bible. I think the truth of the gospel is timeless because it um, actually affects every single aspect of history. Um, but then how that is heard in different historical spaces and places with different culture, um, that stuff changes. And I think then it's part of our job. And this actually I think is part of the art of pastoring is to be able to then um, shape that in a way that actually connects with the culture that we are a part of or the space that we're in. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it's, it's, it's definitely timeless in that it is true across all, all times and spaces, but how it interacts with us, um, that's what changes. Yeah, love that you're making that distinction there and can't wait to hear more, uh, but we're getting there. Um, but just to set the scene a little bit more, we are, our New Heights community is working through the book, um, The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. And so uh, a big theme about in that book and one that we're kind of wrestling with as a community is the idea that sometimes when we talk about the gospel, um, it's replaced with the word salvation or the gospel is only about salvation or salvation is the gospel. And sometimes those words get a little bit muddied and confused and maybe rightfully or wrongfully uh, become interchangeable. So wondering if you can speak speak to the difference of those words and maybe why or why not it, it might be helpful to make a distinction between them. Yeah, I think, I think we should. I think especially um, because salvation, and here I'm going to, maybe this is a bit nerdy, but in the Western like world context, modern world context, the word salvation has got reduced. And essentially then when we think of salvation, often the way we think of it is that we are sinful um, and that we need redemption. So Jesus died for us so that then we can go to heaven. Um, the problem with that idea of salvation is that the center of the story is us. We have sinned. We need redemption. Jesus saves us. We go to heaven. It's actually putting the, the focus on us, which is a problem in the modern world. Um, but really the gospel is so much bigger than that. It's not about us. It's about Jesus and what he has done, yes, for us, but also the entire cosmic history of everything. So we've just reduced it and placed ourselves in the center, which is um, terribly not only self-centered, but it's arrogant and it's wrong and it's reductionistic. So I think, I think yes, the gospel is bigger. It's about the work of Christ Jesus and all that he has done to save and to restore everything. Like that's the language of the Bible. That's just Colossians 1, where it's in and through him, everything has been reconciled, both in heaven and on earth. And then Paul goes on to like explain all of it to make sure we get it's so much uh, bigger than just us. That doesn't mean that it doesn't impact us individually. That's salvation. Yeah, for sure it does. Um, but it's not just reduced to that. So I think it's a problem when we take the gospel and reduce it to it just being about us and what happens to us when it's so much bigger and better than that. Yeah, I think what what a great way to frame that. Um, so why? Why do you think in so much of evangelical sort of experience, people have experienced this synonymous kind of use of terms um, with the plan of salvation or maybe we, we've talked about like methods of persuasion in the plan of salvation and equating that with something that has, if I'm hearing you right, way more good news than just salvation in, in the package of good news, if we want to sort of coin it that way. Um, so what do you think has caused that? I think if we're like honest, uh, there's two things. One, evangelicalism is thoroughly modern. And modernism is about reducing things to the simplest, smallest pieces. And so I just think what it is, is that we like things that are easily graspable and we like things about us. That's like the definition, I think, of our modern world. Um, and so I think that when it comes to the complex, amazing narrative of scripture that talks about all the beauty that God has done and all the work of it, we completely just reduce it and kind of rip it out of its context. We don't talk about how Jesus was um, you know, King Jesus of Israel. Um, we forget about that part. We just make it about us and our own individual things. And I think that's the, I think that's the reason why. Um, I think because the modern Western world is really reductionistic and likes things that are focusing on self, but that's not what the gospel actually is about. It is not reductionistic. It actually is about everything. And it's meant to then turn us towards our neighbor. But I think we've then packaged it in ways that are unfortunately not faithful to the true story of scripture. 
Yeah, it's interesting because you almost feel this instinct living in the modern world that it's good news if I can understand everything about it. You know, if I can kind of control it in the sense of being super clear on what it is and what it isn't, which sort of eliminates any element of mystery to the thing. Um, when When you kind of put gospel next to mystery or maybe even mysticism, is there, does that sort of trigger a different thought in how we might um, look through the lens of the mysteriousness or kind of the transcendence of God and how it, how it's kind of encloaked in gospel. Just curious. Sure. So you can actually define the modern age by something that is called the secular world. And the secular world is what we're living in right now. This is a flattening of all transcendence. This is the fact that both Christians and non-Christians live in a world where none of us really easily believe in divine action. This would not have been true 500 years ago. This is brand new. This is why if your car breaks down, you tend to not lay your hand on it and pray that it will be you know, healed or fixed. You call a mechanic, right? Because the thing that is most real to you is actually your own action, not divine action, not transcendence. So then when it comes to our discussion of gospel, here's, here's the tie-in for me is we've done the same thing. We've just reduced it to the things we understand. We just reduced it to what is most before us. We don't really want to acknowledge the fact that God is mysterious at times, that actually what we rely upon is his inbreaking into our world. And we don't control that. We have zero control over that. We want to actually pretend as if we control both the action and the outcomes of things. And so we package things in that way, rather than saying, no, there's a lot we don't understand. And we're actually called to follow God with our lives, even if we don't fully understand everything. And if we did understand it, then he wouldn't be really God either. Um, but that isn't, that doesn't sell well. It's not easily persuasive. And it's actually, it requires something of you. You know, we're going to have to give up something to do this, um, which I think is the actual thing we should be saying. Um, but we like to package things. And by we, I mean, the modern Western world likes to do that really well. Yeah, I'd love if um, maybe you could unpack that a little bit more for us, just thinking about our specific context. So evangelical church in Canada, are there kind of clear ways that you see or like signposts that you see and, and not just, you know, saying you're like the the knowledgeable critic of the church in Canada, but I guess just from like even a personal position and an academic position, having both studied uh, the church in Canada and also working for a church in Canada, um, would love to just hear some observations that you have, um, kind of thinking about ways that maybe... The church in general has underemphasized or overemphasized either crucial or uncrucial aspects. I guess what I'm asking, maybe just to clarify this a little bit, is what are ways that like you're just thinking we're spending way too much time, effort, money in church for something that isn't actually maybe gospel focused? Sure. Yeah, I think there's like a few things we can talk about if you want, like the church and some of the things I think that we should be doing um, more. Um, And I think that's really about creating spaces and places where pastoring and that's the story of our lives happens. Um, And then I think when it comes to the gospel, though, um, some of the things that we are have overemphasized and missed, I think, especially in the evangelical church, is we have made way too much focus on decisions and doctrines rather than actual lived practices of our lives. That's the real, I think the real problem. Um, So we've made it just about salvation and um, believing in Jesus and believing the right things and the right doctrines, which are always the ones we happen to believe, rather than actually asking like the much bigger question that the gospel is like, this is just Mark when Jesus shows up and he says, you know, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the good news, right? That repentance, it's about a changing of direction. It's about orientating your life differently. It's about living into the kingdom that God has and aligning your life with it. Um, And I think we haven't emphasized that enough, that we need to do things like practice forgiveness because Christ calls us to. And if he is king, this is what it looks like to live in his kingdom. It means we have to do things like stewardship. It means we have to do things like care for um, our neighbor well, Um, not just believe that we should care for our neighbor, but actually do it. Um, We've moved from uh, mental belief, right? Like that's where it's become. And I think we actually need to move to our actual lived actions and our actions really reveal our heart. So if you're asking about what was overemphasized. I think it's decisions and doctrines. And what's been underemphasized is our actual lived behaviors and how Christ has called to call us to, to die in a sense, which means literally to change how we live. Um, so I, I think that's some of what we need to shift. I appreciate that. And speaking of shifting, uh, just like my segue there, I'm shifting over to maybe a different image. 
Uh, thank God we don't have one of those church signs where we have to come up with a quippy thing out front of our church every week. Um, do you have one of those? Sorry if you do, but... We do not. We do okay. not, but maybe right. we'll get one. Dodge yes. the bullet there. Well, anyway, we, we there was a church that had one in our community years ago, and I, I was just thinking of this as you were just, as you were answering Jess's question, that the, the sign said, Jesus is Lord over mission, or Jesus is King over mission, and that's the name of our city mission. And so we... Uh, yeah, we would see this sign, and I remember someone's comment was, well, he sure isn't doing a very good job. Like, if you look around at uh, what's some of the social issues, some of the, the familial issues, and like the list is a mile long of things that are, are broken in our world. So how do we connect those two things, that while Jesus is king, um, and we, like, do we have the authority to say Jesus is king over something that's so broken? Like, how do we put those two things together? Yeah, I think that is the challenge with some of it. Um, but then for me, what I look at is Jesus is king. So how am I then living my life um, in light of his kingship, in light of what he has called me to do? Um, I don't think the focus, and this is often the temptation, is to turn and look at how are other people missing it? Um, but for me, especially as a leader of community, it's about turning us inward and not um, inward in the sense of um, caring about ourselves, but saying, no, God, what are you asking me to do? Where am I missing it? Like, for example, in the um, woe that Jesus gives to uh, the Pharisees, he says, you're blind and you're actually in the way of the kingdom and stopping people from coming in, but you don't even see it. And I think that some of our question then, if we see the world around us that is really broken and is really difficult um, the question we should look at is, okay, what is God calling us to do as a community? Have we done the hard work of actually patterning our lives after him? Have we done the things of Matthew 5 where he calls us to give up revenge and to pray for our enemies and to turn the other cheek and to do the right things that actually live in light with the kingdom? So I think the solution, it's not really the right term solution, but when we see the brokenness is to look at what is God calling me to do, not to question his kingship, but to ask the problem probably isn't with the kingship of Jesus, it's probably the followership of me and how what I'm doing and what I'm a part of. Um, and so I just always want that focus to be, God, what are you asking me to do, rather than um, kind of just judging the, the, the brokenness around. Yeah, that's that's really a, a helpful distinction again, and really a personal push. And have you found that in in your pastoral moments that that can lead to to situations where folks might say, "Well, God has told me this is how I am to step in to some of the social problems or some of the friction that I feel with the kingship of Jesus." And yet, in in your own discernment, you know, not trying to write their story or be judgmental of kind of how God speaks to them, but it just doesn't seem to line up with what you think would be consistent with following after Jesus. How do we how do we think in community in terms of how we can help shape one another's ability to hear what God is inviting us um, as sort of a kingship assignment, I guess, to, yeah. to use yeah. the frame your thing. That's an awesome question. I think the first thing we need to do is that we are highly, we are the most individualistic society that's ever existed. So we use that term, this is God's will for my life, or however that phrase is. We use that as if we can um, intentionally on our own discern that, which is not biblically true. Like that is not how actually discernment happens. That happens in community. That happens in conversation with God. That happens in actually conversation with tradition as well. So I think actually what we are doing often when we use those phrases, um, sometimes we are actually just using that as a way to not have a discussion over what we're doing. And so I think in community, what we should be doing is really talking that through and saying, okay, what is the will of God in this situation? What are you seeing? What are you sensing? And then we often forget this, but Jesus is really clear. You can tell what is right and wrong by the fruit of something. So if you're going down that path and there's only more brokenness or difficulty or division, this isn't from him. Um, I think what we'd like to do is use that as an excuse to actually just do what we want, which again is individualism. And that needs to come under the Lordship of Christ and say, actually, no, we need to learn about mutual submission together. We need to learn about listening to one another. And that's the art of pastoring where pastors actually, ideally, um, they come into a community and they're in a space, you know, with a small group, whatever it may be. And they, they help people to navigate and to reveal what God's will is. Not that they're the ones revealing it, but their job is to discern it along with it, perhaps to name it and then submit it to them for prayer, for discernment, for is this, is this also sitting right with you? So I think the way you do that is in community, in conversation with one another, and in conversation with the scriptures and tradition. We just, that's a long, messy process, and people like quick answers, 
but I just, I don't know. If you read the Bible, God doesn't seem to do things quickly. Like that. I just don't think that's a biblical thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you reference tradition and history, we think back on different times in, in history where the reflection on the gospel or maybe even pictures that inspire people to um, see the gospel as good news have looked really different from what might feel like good news now. And I remember, Andrew, you and I having a conversation about this years ago. Um, but I maybe just to bring that front of mind here, are there times where maybe from a pastoral kind of instinct or maybe more of an apostolic instinct or even a prophetic instinct that leaders in church history have leaned into ways of describing what we're talking about here, the good news of orienting our lives around the person of Jesus um, and ultimately the kingdom of Jesus, uh, or maybe I should say that the other way around, the kingdom of Jesus and ultimately the person of Jesus. Are there, are there examples in history where it's looked different than it does now um, from, from your vantage point? Sure, I think, I think history changes, right? And people are in different spaces. And then when it comes to discussing the gospel, we use the things that are most like ready to us, right? And we are patterned in certain ways. Even as I said earlier, we live in a secular age, which is brand new, right? People, you know, 500 years ago, uh, the question wasn't which God, oh, do you believe in God? It's which God you believed in, right? Because you're enculturated in different spaces. So for example, like Anselm has a really beautiful way of talking about God's interaction with us, salvation, the gospel. Um, but Anselm lived in a world that was feudal, where there was kings and then feudal lords. And so it's, it's called the satisfaction theory. And it makes a lot of sense in that world. When you rip it out of that world, because we no longer live in a feudal society, all of a sudden some things can strike us as funny. And then sometimes what we do then is we judge Anselm rather than realizing some of the beauty and the goodness that he brought as a way of speaking about the gospel of his culture. I think Calvin did something similar. I think the task really of the church is to continue to not update the gospel. Like that's not what I'm saying, but to make sure that we are sharing it in ways that actually is resonating with what the spirit is doing in our world so that it connects, so that people can hear, so that they can respond. Um, I think it actually requires like creativity, faithfulness, discernment, a deep immersion in scripture. Um, but sometimes we, we miss those things. And so we just lean on workers of the past. That's not wrong. But I think sometimes that's why it can feel a little bit false or funny. Um, we've taken something out of the context that it was in that actually was the thing that gave it such beauty and momentum. Yeah, that that really reminds me um, in my undergrad in our like intro to theology class. Um, one of like the things or the classes that the first year students all looked forward to was the one where we talked about atonement theories. Um, and basically that just means for our listeners uh, what Jesus's action on the cross really meant uh, and what it did what it accomplished. And in this class, we learned about four different atonement theories. And then at the end of it, you had to stand in the corner of which one you like bought into or something. And, and it's funny how like some, some of the atonement theories got such a, a bad rap because, because like, uh, for example, a, a liberation gospel, which is focused on freedom for the poor and oppressed and kind of overthrowing evil powers um, that hurt the marginalized. Like I remember maybe one person out of a class of 40 stood in that corner, which is interesting because in, in, in my mind, I'm like, that is so clearly a part of the gospel. Um, however, most of us here in North America, you know, British Columbia, Abbotsford, none of us had been oppressed. So we like, didn't like, didn't see that as being the point of the gospel. And so I, I appreciate what you're saying. And, and it doesn't mean that, I guess, things aren't true, but it's just, it, I guess it goes to show how much our own experience um, impacts our theology, which is no surprise, but we just forget that pretty easily, <laughs> speaking <Yeah>. to myself. <laughs> and that's maybe even some of the, the mystery too that Greg talked about. I think some of the problem is, is when we no longer have humility when we go to the scriptures and realize there's some things we don't know, and that often what, like in that example, we have downplayed some actual scriptural ways of speaking of Jesus's death and resurrection because it doesn't connect with us personally. And like, yeah, what you're saying, Jess, about like, sometimes it's called liberation, um, liberation, atonement theory, or like ransom theory too. Um, these are ways that the scripture speaks primarily referring to the exodus of when God showed up and liberated the people. This becomes the driving kind of metaphor and motif. But if you're not oppressed, 
this one doesn't resonate with you. You don't even think about it. You might not even realize it. And then the only lens you might talk about salvation in is one that actually doesn't resonate with somebody else. And what we've done then is really limited the voices of scripture, like the voice of scripture and the different things that are a part of it. And that part really worries me. I think we just need more immersion in scripture and to realize the varied spaces and ways that got that people talk about Jesus' death and resurrection and how it affects us. Um, we need to be fluent in those. Um, depending on where we're at, with who we're at, we might want to use any one of those scriptural motifs because they're there. So they should be used. Yeah. 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 I love that. You're just also reminding me of my refusal to read Paul, any of Paul's work in the Bible for several years, just because I was mad <laughs> and just because I was annoyed. <laughs> um, but anyways, just pressing into a bit more of uh, I guess our current storyline and, and how the gospel interacts with that rightfully or wrongfully. Um, what do you think is an equivalent storyline? I guess in, you know, you gave the example of Anselm and how he was facing feudal lords and kings and queens, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you think is our equivalent storyline for where we find ourselves? 2022 evangelical church in Canada. I guess what are some of the, the players in involved in defining how the gospel interacts with our lives. Yeah. I think there are like, when it comes to how do we speak about the gospel in a current day and age, there are people um, who are using that like past like, different like languages, different kind of motifs and different kind of metaphors. For me, um, the one that when I want to speak about the gospel, the one that I keep relying upon most um, is actually the language of not only Jesus as king, but really the language of God breaking into our world, of seeing God move in our world. Um, I think we are very similar, actually, but flipped uh, to the early church. So the early church lived in a world where everybody believed in all sorts of gods all over the place. There was no like worry about that. It was like, you know, uh, pantheism all over, all over the place, right? Um, and what challenged people in that space to believe in Christianity was actually when God would show up, when there'd be divine action, when they would see the reality of God's movement in a community of people who are so committed to one another that it didn't matter whether you were a slave or free, a Jew or Greek, right, um, male or female. It was the unity and the action of God that drew people into understanding that Christ truly is king. I think we live in a similar world now. It's just flipped. Nobody believes in God by nature, right? This is being really um, just like secularized by uh, by the world around us. And so therefore what we need is to draw people into the gospel is for people to see a community where there is divine action, where there is such a unity that people can't um, explain it other than that there must be something true in that and to experience and see uh, the good news of God in their lives. I think what we need to move away from in terms of the gospel um, is we need to move away from like just speaking about it to people experiencing the reality of it. I think that's what speaks in a postmodern world. It's actually encountering Jesus. And the beauty of the gospel is like Jesus is still alive and he can still talk and still be here and we can see him and encounter him. So yeah, that's kind of what I think that a different storyline would look like. Yeah, I I like some of the different language that you're giving. Um, just hearing you kind of mention community, group of us, God's at the center, breaking into kind of everything because Something that I at least struggle with is this language of even Jesus as king sometimes. Um, a, I don't have any experience with having a king, so like I can only equate that to a prime minister, I guess. It doesn't feel the same, though. Um, and then also it feels kind of like colonialistic. Is that a word? But it's also kind of like king feels kind of negative. So like, is that even a good word to use anymore? I guess what I'm asking is what's maybe more helpful language for even like a, a current context like this where I think a lot of my friends who who don't identify as Christians would be like uh, I'm not signing up to have a king <laughs> be in charge of my life uh, any thoughts around that yeah then I, I I yes you're right it can count off very colonial and it can sound off very um like like top-down power kind of stuff that our world reacts against um, and so then I, I don't think there's anything wrong then with using the other spiritual, like, um, biblical metaphors specifically. And this one, I think really does matter of community and family. Like those are the primary metaphors actually for the Christ's body, the church. It's actually of community and family together. It's about a body that comes together. And so, um, I think inviting people into a true community where you are actually seen, where you are heard, where together we actually see where life is both found in Christ 
And they might not understand that language, but they can certainly understand the language that the world around us is death dealing in so many ways. Consumerism is killing our world, greed, idolatry, all the schisms and division. And I think what people are really longing for is to see something that is true and real and that lasts. That's what the church can actually highlight and when it's actually like living as, as it should. Um, so sometimes then I'm, I won't talk about like, yeah, um, being invited into Christ's kingdom. That might be very foreign to them. Um, but the idea of being invited into a family where you are welcomed as you are, and that from that space, from that space, you actually experience new life and new freedom. But guess what? When you're part of a family, there are also family rules, right? Like that's what happens. That's the same language of when you're part of a kingdom, there's kingdom rules. There's family rules too. So in this family, we love one another. We practice forgiveness. We don't let things divide us because that goes against the family uh, kind of creed or rules. That's that's how I would talk about it. You're invited into a family and this is how our family behaves. Every family has those different patterns, right? That are natural and normal to them. We're just adopting kingdom Jesus-like patterns in our family. Yeah, even just like the word, like loyalty to the families coming to mind. Like I'm, I'm thinking of, of like the movie in Canto and you've probably seen that because you have kids um, and maybe listeners have seen that. But it like, I guess in that movie, it's kind of all about everyone contributes and represents the family well. And then when this main character doesn't have a special way of contributing or, or doesn't realize it yet, then that's kind of when everything goes askew and she feels like she has to prove herself. But but it's really actually about like loyalty to the to the family yeah. and, and and everyone needed to have a shift in that movie about that. Yeah, and I, I think that's a beautiful thing. And especially too, when you think about that metaphor too, like we all then are have something to contribute to the family. Like what if what if that is the, the the driving thing? And this even gets a little bit back to what Jesus says in John 3, where he says, like you must be born again. Um, people think that's a weird thing, but think about in terms of a family like like language, then it makes much more sense, right? That whenever you're born into a family, you're born into certain ways of behaving, of acting, of certain things that are um, true or not. This is why Canada is different than like the US or you know the rest of the world is, is very different as well. Um, and so when you're born again, you're born into a new way of living as a family with Christ. And it's about being um, then, yeah, using the gifts that he has given to you for the upliftment of the family, the betterment of it. Um, and so I just think for us, it's a, in our family, we talk about, we have three family rules. Um, we talk about every week. And I just mean, it's similar in Christianity. This is how we live. This is how we behave. Um, and I think it's not just about our behavior as if that saves us, but it's about us living into the things that give life. Um, and that's what Jesus leads us into. Uh, I'd love to know the three family rules, if we could. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you three family <laughs> You're rules. You're open to so, sharing them. Or do you remember yeah. them? You remember them? I, I do. I do. These are, our, these are our three family rules. To start off each Friday, we light, this might sound too weird for people, but we light a candle um, every Friday as a family. Our kids sit around. Um, we recite our three family rules. I'm a real parent. So like, I don't mean to pretend that this is magical. Sometimes they're fighting and kicking each other and it's like the worst moment ever. Um, but we recite our three family rules and then I pray a blessing over each kid every single every single week. Um, and the three family rules are um, uh, that kindness matters in our family. So kindness matters. We work hard to love one another and to love others around us. And then the main one that everything stems this from is that God and um, we always say mom and dad love you no matter what. And that will never change. Those are our three family rules that we relate. And so then we, in our family, if something goes astray, we're like, hey, no, no, we practice kindness. That's the thing. Or it's like, no, no, we're going to work hard to love one another. Yeah, but my brother, it sucks. I'm like, I know, but you are going to like, you're going to work hard to love one another. I know he's annoying you or whatever, right? Like we use that as grounding things. And I think it's similar actually. Like I got that from the Bible. That's where that comes from, right? Like these are these ground who we are. So yeah, those are our three family rules. Kindness matters, um, love one another, and yeah, God loves you no matter what. So I'm just curious in the uh, in the parental relationship, is there any quoting of those rules to one another at given times? I'm just kind of maybe autobiographical here. <laughs> oh, um, there. I don't. I don't believe my wife has ever quoted that to me. Um, but she also resists all of my. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. She would not. She'd just tell me what to do. That wouldn't be that. <laughs> She's very independent and strong. Well, Andrew, I think we could probably talk all day with you and hope that we have other opportunities to carry on this conversation. But we just want to pause here and thank you for being here with us and inviting us into the way you think about some of these very important topics. We love the way you've articulated things that we definitely agree with. And so thank you for for doing that. And I I wondered um, in in uh, terms of sort of a pastoral moment, um, is there a way that you would 
you would bless or communicate a blessing or benediction or how do you how do you think you could be pastoral in this moment uh, for our community way over on the other side of the country? Sure. Um, the thing that occurs to me um, that maybe as somebody you don't know that I would like to just encourage you with is that if you're a part of their community, your voice is needed. I know their heart, your voice is needed. Uh, there is no way. There is no way that we are ever going to see this world change without actually people in church coming together and each of us sharing what it is that God has gifted us about us actually doing the work together and actually doing the hard work of loving one another and inviting others into that love. So I just want to encourage you, if you're hearing this, um, you don't need like degrees and all of that stuff to faithfully follow Jesus. You don't need to know all the Greek words and all that stuff. That's helpful. I love it. It's super nerdy. But Really, I just want to encourage you um, to use your voice and your community and to be a part of it, to participate and to bring what God has given to you. Because when we all show up like that, I think that's when really, that's when we find Jesus working, right? When he says we're two or three are gathered together. And that's just all I'd love to encourage you with. And yeah, that's it for me. Thanks so much. Uh, we long to see God break into our story in the way you described. Thanks so much, Andrew. See you again. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Next, we turn our attention to Amy Van Bergen. Her song provokes all kinds of thoughts, and so we thought who better to discuss those with than the person who wrote the song. Well, hey, Amy. It's great to have you on here. We've got Amy Van Bergen, a um, friend of a couple years, uh, attendee of New Heights Church, singer-songwriter, uh, Tessel teacher, what else can I say, artist, um, has the most amazing red curly hair I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. It's looking nice. <laughs> Anyways, that's uh, I guess that's how I'd introduce you, but Amy, we're so glad you're here. Um, we'd love for you to give our listeners just a little snapshot into your life. Um, yeah, introducing yourself in whatever way feels most meaningful uh, to you. Fair enough. Well, now I'm all pink, but I am, yeah, I'm Amy Van Bergen. I'm from Treaty One Territory in small town Manitoba, a town called Beauxager. It's supposed to be French, but who knows? Um, and I moved to Abbotsford to go to Bible College five years ago. So, now I'm pretending to be a West Coast lady, but uh, yeah, singer-songwriter, really interested in Tessel and different cultures and art as well on the side to keep me sane. So, Well, and art is really the reason we had this idea. I think we could probably interview you on all kinds of topics, but today you've been generous enough to play a song we heard you sing one time for us exclusively on the podcast, <laughs> which is great. And we're actually gonna close our podcast with your song, but we thought, we, we didn't wanna miss the opportunity to dig in a little bit to why this song um, was written and, and really what it's about. So before we hear the song, can you tell us a little bit what it's about? Yeah, so the song is called Nothing But The Love. Um, and it's about the idea that Normally we, we hear the Jesus story and it's small enough to fit on a bracelet with four different colors. And I think growing up in the church and having those bracelets and bothering my friends with that story, um, thinking that this is how I love Jesus, um, is to remember these four points. Um, now after 22 years of that story, I'm, I'm growing in my understanding of how much bigger it is and that not just that Jesus' life was longer than three days, but that the whole Bible is filled with a lot more stories, a lot more places we can connect to, a lot more ways that I can um, make sense of my life. And so the song is kind of exploring those different, different aspects of the Jesus story that don't necessarily talk about death, <laughs> which is kind of nice sometimes after a pandemic and some hard times that I want to... I want to meditate on a good story and it, I don't want it to be bloody, you know? 
Yeah, I, I love, I mean, I'm sure when our listeners hear the song, they'll hear a similar tune to the classic hymn, Nothing But the Blood. And I love the way that I feel like your song encapsulates the heart of, I guess, um, the way that, that Jesus is, whatever Jesus did, radically changed the rest of history for us going forward. But I love the changing or the shift in emphasis on the life and the hope, not like kind of the gruesome stuff that we can watch in The Passion if we really want to, though I'm still scared <laughs> to watch that movie <laughs> for that for that reason. Um, but Amy, I'd, I'd love just to hear maybe a bit of a glimpse into the why of, of writing this song. What was going on, if you're comfortable sharing, what was what were you in the midst of in this season of writing this song? You mentioned it was about a year ago when you wrote it. Yeah, yeah. So um, basically when Easter came around, I, by that point, things had kind of opened up in terms of COVID and I was trying to like get back into church and whatever ways were available. But I found discussing the crucifixion and um, even taking communion and just the mention of like a broken body, like of this man who loved you was really, it, it was really, really hard because my, my father had died a year prior or not quite a year. And I, just the way that it had happened, it was, it was gory. And I did see a lot that I wish I hadn't seen. And it made the idea of partaking communion, um, horrifying to me that, um, yeah, the, the lines between um, life and death and blood and hope and love and all these things just got really muddled in my brain. And I couldn't really, I found, like, I can't really approach this story without grieving. So how can I, how can I return to church? How can I return to God if all of it is wrapped up in this very PTSD-inducing memory, this moment? So I want to have a spirituality that can be bigger than grief so that it can hold grief as well. Um, so yeah, at this point it was Easter and the Easter story is gross (laughs) when you really picture it. And, um, I guess I was kind of angsty. There's a little bit of that energy there of like, this is gross. Why are we all singing about this gore? And there's kids singing this, there's grandmas singing this. This is so cultish. Why are we doing this? isn't the story bigger? Are there other things we can talk about and still maintain the story and still be speaking truth? And yeah, so it's just me wrestling with, there's got to be other ways for me to get close to this story without it being so painful. Well, what I love is that um, we can listen to this song and we uh, will probably learn a bit more of what you mean and the nuance of what you're describing as we listen So before we do, just a huge heartfelt thanks from Jess and I that you would be willing to share this with us. And thanks so much for letting us into some of the behind the scenes of how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking and giving me the opportunity to share. Oh, precious is the flow Sing about the thing. 
to me what a waste of all of my life and all of my love remember all the lepers and the women at the wells remember that salvation started long before i of Nazareth are you just a little uncomfortable with how much I know the details of your death but not your life Jesus of Nazareth is there any other part of your story that you'd rather that I steepen that you think has more glory like when you saved a woman from some stones that would unfairly have been thrown if you hadn't been around your naked body in a sheet so you could bend and wash our feet pouring glory on the ground or come back to make us breakfast on the beach saying death has lost its sting and there's hope yet to be found oh jesus of nazareth you've opened up my eyes now tell me where i ought to look and why I shouldn't just run and hide. Jesus of Nazareth, you're not the only one who I love, who's died. Jesus of Nazareth, what have you to say if only you and Lazarus are worthy to be raised? What do you say on Easter morning to all What do you say on Easter morning to all those who are mourning for longer than three days? 281 days. What have you to say? What have you to say? Remember my life. Remember my love. If you only sing about the things that happened to me. All of my life and all of my love Remember all the lepers and the women at the wells Remember that salvation started long before I bled Remember our still love creation Thank you for listening, and thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community. Join us again next month when the Read podcast continues to press into themes surrounding the gospel. This has been episode 21 of the Re podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before.